You may be seated. Well, in these verses, Paul is defending a claim, and the claim that he has made is that justification is by faith alone. Now, you remember uh, a few weeks ago as we've been studying the book of Romans, this is the clear claim that Paul has been making, that justification is by faith alone. In Romans 3.28, he says, For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, what does it mean to be justified? Just so we're clear, what does it mean to be justified? What is justification? Well, it's to be made righteous like God is righteous. It's to be made righteous like God. See, in order for a person to enter into a relationship with God, they must be righteous like God. They must be without sin like God. The problem is, though, that none of us is righteous like God. God has no sin, but we have much sin, which makes us unrighteous and worthy of the judgment of God. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That Paul says that, there, <clears throat> that what has been revealed is this, is that we can be made righteous like God is righteous. But How? Well, Paul emphatically tells us that it happens by faith, through faith, which is to say it's not by works, or more specifically, it's not by keeping the law. It's not by doing something, and this is contrary to how many people then thought as well as how many people today think. Many people believe that a person is declared righteous, they're forgiven of their sin, reconciled to God by something that they do. For instance, maybe through causing pain. On Friday night, uh, my brother-in-law, he sent out a challenge to our family on our group text, and it was a polar snow plunge. He went out and laid in the snow for uh, 10 seconds, and so naturally, my sons and I had to accept uh, this challenge. And so on Friday night, I don't know what time it was, but uh, myself there on the left, Brooks on the far right, and McCabe in the middle, we decided that we were going to go out and lay in the snow for uh, 10 seconds. And I was counting, and if you hear the video, uh, I sound like a little child because I'm ready to get out of the snow as quick as possible. <clears throat> Brooks didn't even cover himself, but McCabe and I, we actually fully got in the snow and covered ourselves, and then we quickly got out and ran into the house, and our bodies are bright red. And then Brooks, to try to warm himself up, he put himself in the sink. He's got his goggles on in case the water was spraying up uh, in the sink. But he has his goggles on to warm him up. But people think there's something you need to do. There are many who taught that you need to cause pain, inflict pain on yourself in order to pay for your sin. There are those who taught that you must obey the law, certain parts of the Mosaic law, that you must do something in order to become righteous like God, to make up for your sin. But this is not the case. Paul says righteousness is not by works of the law. It's not by something we do. It's only through faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now to prove this point, Paul offers two test cases. Uh, the first is Abraham, verses 1 through 5, as Dan taught on last week. Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish people, the first Jew. So his example is crucial. And when was Abraham declared righteous? Well, we're told in Romans 4, 3, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And Paul is quoting Genesis 15, 6. And so when did Abraham, when was he declared righteous? When did he become righteous before God? Through the law? No, it was before the law. Abraham was declared righteous prior to ever even having the law, is Paul's point. Now, what Paul does in verses 6 through 12 is he offers two more examples to prove his point about how a person becomes righteous. There's two more proofs that justification is by faith, and the first proof is David. The first is David. In verse 6, Paul goes on, he says, likewise, 
David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Likewise, uh, Paul says, or just like Abraham, Paul says, David also speaks of the blessing. Now, who is David? Well, David, he is the Israel's greatest king. Uh, his family line is the line that the Messiah was promised to come through. That his throne, his uh, he, his throne was the, the throne that is supposed to last forever, reign forever, is what he was promised. That David is one of the authors of the Psalms. In fact, of the 150 Psalms written, we know that David wrote 75 of them, which means he's used by God. He was used by God to write the Word of God. But David, David was also a man who knew what it was like to be a guilty sinner. David, you remember, he had outright broken three of the Ten Commandments, if you just look at the Ten Commandments. He coveted Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Eventually, he committed adultery with her. And then what did he do? To cover up his sin, he had Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, murdered in battle. All in the attempt to cover his sin, because Bathsheba had gotten pregnant. That he knew the seriousness of his sin, the shame of sin, and the need for salvation from sin. In fact, Psalm 32, which we'll get into here as Paul quotes here in the next few verses, but in Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4, David is speaking of his sin. He says, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. I mean, just think about being outside where right now it's freezing cold, but in a few weeks, I'm sure it'll be like 100 degrees here in Iowa. Like, that's how it goes. Like, it's freezing cold and then burning hot. And you remember in the summertime, and you're wishing for summer, but as you get into summer, you're going to realize and feel the heat, and it drains your strength. David understood what it was like to be in sin, the guilt of sin, the shame of sin, the weight of sin, what it did to him. But David also knew the blessing of, or how good it was to be forgiven for his sin. In verses 7 and 8, Paul is quoting Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, and he says, Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Psalm 32, David, here he is celebrating the forgiveness for his sin, the forgiveness that he has experienced. And to emphasize the point, David uses three different Hebrew words for sin, followed by three different Hebrew verbs for forgiveness. I'll read here Psalm 32, 1 through 2, because it's more clear than how Paul quoted it. But 32, verses 1 and 2, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity, and in whose spirit, in whose spirit is no deceit. There are three different terms, Hebrew terms, used for sin, highlighting different aspects of sin. The first, transgression. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven? Transgression is the idea of crossing the line. Uh, it's defying authority. It's the basic idea of just rebellion. And then David says, whose sin is covered. The idea of sin is a more general term, just referring to a deliberate offense. It's falling short or missing the mark. And then third, David says, who is not charged with iniquity. Iniquity is this idea of crookedness, distortion. It's going astray. And these three words about sin are followed by three different verbs for forgiveness, which he starts with forgiven, which is, literally means to be lifted up. It emphasizes the, the, the burden of sin being lifted up from a person, lifting the burden or debt 
off of a person. And then Paul says that they are covered. Their sin is covered. When you think about covering something, what is the idea? Well, it's to hide it. You're trying to hide something, keep it out of sight. It's to cover our sin, something that is offensive. It has to do, in fact, with this sacrificial blood covering for sin. And then David exclaims how we are not charged. He says, who does not charge with iniquity? And the word charge here is this idea of bookkeeping, keeping a record of wrong. In a legal context, it meant to count or consider as liable for punishment, to impute guilt. In this context, it means that God, God does not count, a, count sin against a person, the sin they have committed. And David is praising God for this. And where does David attribute this forgiveness for all of his sin? Where does he attribute his forgiveness to himself? No, he attributes it to the Lord, to God. I mean, listen, he says, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse 5, he says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Who forgave David's sin? Who forgave his coveting, his adultery, his murder, his deceit about his sin? Who forgave him? Where does forgiveness come from? God. God, the Lord. And see, David didn't do anything to receive this forgiveness. The idea is that God gave him righteousness. David didn't earn it. That instead what we find is the greatest king of Israel, the, an author of scripture, a sinner just like us received forgiveness apart from works, but rather through God wiping them away and inscribing righteousness in his place, in his place. That David was declared not guilty or justified before God by God. In fact, F.F. F. Bruce commenting on Psalm 32, he says, and if we examine the remainder of the psalm to discover the ground on which he was acquitted, it appears that he simply acknowledged his guilt and cast himself in faith upon the mercy of God. What did, what did David do? He just cast himself upon the mercy of God. He acknowledged that he was a sinner, casting himself upon God's mercy, and God gave him righteousness. That David agrees with Abraham regarding the idea of imputed righteousness or a righteousness that is credited a goodness that is given, something that is not earned. And so Abraham is not an exception. It's not like Paul just points to Abraham and that's all. He also points to not only the father of the Jews, but the greatest king of the Jews, David, that David himself celebrates this same reality, that he was made righteous by God, credited righteousness forgiven by God, not by anything that he had done, no works of his own. And so proof one is King David. Proof two then Paul circles back to Abraham, and more specifically, Abraham's circumcision. There's a lot of use of the word circumcised or uncircumcised in these next few verses. And Paul, in verse 9, says, Is this blessing only for the circumcised then? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Now, why does Paul ask this question about circumcision? What's going on? Well, the Paul, Paul anticipates, I think, a question or an objection that the Jewish people who are hearing this would have been asking at this point in the argument. And I think here is the question or the objection. If Abraham was justified by his faith alone, why did God demand that Abraham and all his descendants be circumcised? 
If Abraham was justified by faith alone, if that's all it took, then, then, then Paul, why did God command Abraham and all of his descendants to be circumcised? It's kind of like someone is saying to Paul, Paul, suppose I agree with what you've said about Abraham, that he has been uh, declared righteous because of faith, that he has entered into a right relationship with God because he believed God. But Paul, you still have to agree that he was circumcised. He was circumcised, Paul, so doesn't circumcision matter? Doesn't it matter in terms of your standing before God? And to understand this, you have to understand how the Jews thought about circumcision, especially at this point in time. They, they attached salvation to circumcision. Uh, most Jews, my understanding, in the New Testament times were thoroughly convinced that circumcision was not only a, a unique mark that set them apart from all other peoples as God's chosen people, but is also a means by which they became acceptable to God, that they could be in right relationship with God. There's many places where this is taught. One of those is in the Jewish apocryphal book of Jubilees, the book of Jubilees. This is what uh, is written. This law, speaking of circumcision, circumcision, is for all generations forever. And there is no circumcision of the time and no passing over one day out of eight days. For it is an eternal ordinance ordained and written on the heavenly tab- tables. And everyone that is born, the flesh of whose foreskin is not circumcised in the eighth day, belongs not to the children of the covenant which the Lord made with Abraham, for he belongs to the children of destruction, nor is there moreover any sign on him that he is the Lord's, but he is destined to be destroyed and slain from the earth. That to be a Jew, you must be circumcised. And if you were a Jew who was circumcised, you stood in right relationship with God. This was the idea. That circumcision was essential to being a Jew, essential to being part of God's chosen people. To be a part of God's chosen people, you must be circumcised. So circumcision was key to being in relationship with God. And throughout Paul's ministry, Jewish converts tried to bring circumcision into play in the church. Meaning, they would teach that justification required faith plus circumcision. You see this in the book of Galatians. You see, you see this in Acts. In fact, uh, there's a whole council in Acts chapter 15 debating this issue because many Jews came into the church and they said circumcision must happen. In order for a person to be right with God, to be made righteous, they must believe God and they must be circumcised. And they would point to Abraham to justify their claim. They would look at Abraham and see, see Abraham who is our father, who we are a part of, he was circumcised. And if Abraham, who is a friend of God, and our father was circumcised, then we must be circumcised also. So what does Paul do? What's his response? Well, verse 10. In what way then was it credited, or was their righteousness or his righteousness credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Paul said, when when was Abraham declared righteous? Was it when he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, here's what Paul says. It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. Now, how can Paul make such a definitive statement? How can he say that? Well, because this is exactly what the Scriptures teach. It's exactly what the Scriptures teach. In Genesis 15, 6, we're told in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord... And he credited it to him as righteousness. So God comes to Abraham, making covenant with Abraham. It says that Abraham believes God. And because he believes upon the promises of God, he is declared to be righteous. Then Genesis 17. A few chapters later and many years later, 
God comes to Abraham and affirms his covenant, but this time he tells Abraham to do something in verse 9. As for you, and, as for you, you and your offspring, after you throughout the generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you, your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the, fo- the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. And if any male is not circumcised in the flesh of this foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And you skip a few verses down in verse 23. So Abraham took his son Ishmael. Those born in his household or purchased, every male among the members of Abraham's household, and he circumcised the foreskin of their flesh on that day, just as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13 years old. 99. Now that's a rough go. 99 years old, 13 years old. So when was Abraham circumcised? Before or after being declared righteous? Well, clearly, it was after. Clearly, he was circumcised after God had already declared him righteous. In fact, if you do the math, it's at least 14 years later, if not 29 years, depending on how you calculate it. I mean, Ishmael's 14, or 13, so you give a year for uh, Hagar being pregnant. It was at least that long, at least that Abraham's circumcision happened after. So why? Why was Abraham circumcised? Why is God commanding this 99-year-old man to get circumcised? What's the point? Well, verse 11, Paul says, here's the reason. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. Paul looks at the situation, he says, here's what is going on. That he was circumcised as a sign. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal. And you think about this. A sign points to something and a seal is guaranteeing something, right? You seal something, you guarantee it's your stamp of approval. The sign points to the seal guarantees. And so circumcision is this sign pointing to the fact that his righteousness came from God. And the seal guaranteeing that he was made righteous by faith in God. This sign in seal The circumcision is a sign that Abraham already had faith, that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous. When? After circumcision? No, before. See, circumcision was not the gateway to his right relationship with God. It's just a sign and a seal that he already had entered into. It's like a document. It ratified the righteousness by faith that Abraham had already had prior to circumcision. In other words, Abraham being counted righteous had nothing to do with circumcision, rather had everything to do with faith. I mean, just think about a wedding ring, for instance. I have a ring on my finger, and a ring on my finger, what, does it make me married? No. I can take it off, I can't get it off, but I can take it off, and and, uh, it wouldn't change my, the fact that I'm married to my wife. But what does a ring do? It's a sign, and it symbolizes something. It symbolizes that I've made a covenant with my wife, that that we are going to be married till death do us part. 
We've committed our lives to one another. It doesn't make me married. It just is a symbol showing that I am married. It's a symbol of the vows that I've made with my wife. Or baptism. What is baptism? Well, baptism is a symbol of a believer's death and resurrection with Christ. The baptism doesn't save us. It has no merit in itself, no ability to actually wash away our sin, but it's a symbol. It's a picture of the cleansing that we've received in Christ. It's an outward demonstration of an inner reality that we have been saved, that we have been washed by the blood of Christ, that we go down under the water and we come up through the water, that our life has been put to death and we have this new life in Christ. It doesn't save. It just points to this greater reality, this reality of salvation in Christ. The circumcision can't save you. Baptism can't save you. There's no work that can save or justify a person, make a person righteous before God other than faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Paul says it's faith in Jesus. It's believing upon the work of Christ, that Jesus came and died, that his blood was shed, body broken, that he bore our sins on a tree, that he was cursed so that we would not be that he was put to death in our place so that we might be declared righteous before God. Now Abraham, <clears throat> not Abraham, Paul rather, draws a really important conclusion from these verses. The conclusion is this, Abraham is the father of all who believe like he believed. Abraham is the father of all who believe like he believed. Now to us that may not sound like a big deal, but if you're a Jew sitting there, that is a big deal. Because all of a sudden that means something, wait a minute. The true children of Abraham are not simply people who have the bloodline of Abraham. Abraham is not the father of those who have the bloodline of the same genealogy as Abraham, who are Jews. But rather, that Abraham is now the father of people who aren't Jewish, Gentiles, like us. Listen to what Paul says in verse 11. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised so that righteousness may be credited to them also. This is to make him the father of all who believe, but what? But are not circumcised, meaning who? The Gentiles. The Gentiles, the non-Jewish person. That the non-Jewish person, the Gentile, could now <clears throat> could be declared to be a son and daughter of Abraham. They could look at Abraham and say that Abraham is our father. Why? How? Well, through faith, through believing like Abraham. And then verse 12, Paul says, and he became the father of the circumcised, the Jew, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. Paul says circumcision doesn't matter, circumcised or not. What matters is do you have faith? Do you believe like Abraham believed? See, Abraham believed when he was what? Uncircumcised, not circumcised. And see, Abraham is the father of those who make the same act of faith in God that he made. He's the father of every person at and every point in time who takes God at his word like Abraham did. The descendants of Abraham are not members of any particular nation. But think about it, rather, they're those of every nation who belong to the family of God through faith in Christ that Abraham would be the father of many nations. As numerous as the stars in the sky, the sand in the seashore, how? 
How? Through faith. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this means that a man may be a Jew by lineage or circumcised, but not be a true child of Abraham. And this also means that through faith in Christ, both Jew and Gentile are brother and sister. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, this dividing wall of hostility is torn down. And this is a wild notion, a wild idea for the Jew. That somebody who is not like them, not Jewish, not circumcised, could be declared righteous, and they could call Abraham their father. And how or why? Well, because of this great truth. The way to God, it's not through membership to a nation. It's not through any ordinance like circumcision, which makes a mark upon a man's body. But it's by faith, which takes God at his word and makes everything dependent, not on a person's achievement, not on what we do, but solely upon the grace of God. It's all upon the grace of God. That a man, a woman, we are declared righteous, not through something we do, but solely by God's grace, through the work that he accomplished through Jesus Christ. And so, in closing, what should we do? Well, just two applications here this morning. First is this, is receive righteousness like Abraham. Receive righteousness like Abraham. In verse 12, Paul says he became the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised but also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham. How did Abraham receive righteousness? Well, the whole point is he received righteousness not through something he did but through believing God, through faith. Through faith, and we know more specifically through faith in Christ, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus, who is righteous, he took on our sin, became unrighteous. He bore our sin on his body. He was punished in our place. He paid for our debt. He died our death. And when a person believes upon Christ and what he did on the cross, that he died to pay for our sin, he rose again conquering death and defeating sin, what happens is that you are given the righteousness of Christ. You are declared righteous. You're not guilty of sin. That you stand before God in relationship with God. That God does not look at you and see you as a sinner, but rather as a saint, someone who is holy, who belongs to him who has the right to come into his presence to be a friend of him, to be declared a son or daughter. That God is our Father. The only way for any man, any woman to be declared righteous is by receiving righteousness through faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This leads to number two then. We should rejoice. Rejoice in your righteousness like David. Obviously, Paul is pointing to David, and he's looking at David, and David is exclaiming, he is is celebrating his righteousness that he has from God. That in Psalm 32, he says, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I love this. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. How joyful, David says. David, who was a sinner of, of, I mean, he committed all kind of sin, right? He, he coveted Bathsheba, he had, a, uh, he had an affair, he then kills or has his, uh, Bathsheba's husband Uriah murdered, 
And David is standing here and he's exclaiming, he is celebrating, he is rejoicing in the fact that he has been forgiven by the Lord for all of his sin. That it is completely covered. That it is wiped away. That God no longer looks at him and holds his sin against him. He's no longer going to punish him for the sin that he has committed, of which David has committed many sin, great sin in our eyes, but rather he is forgiven. All his debt is washed away. The David in Psalm 32, he says, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long for day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. God's hand, the conviction of his sin my strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me. That when we confess, when we go to God and we look to Christ, when we trust in the work of Christ dying in our place for our sin, what happens? Your sin is washed away. And what should that should leave us with is rejoicing. We should celebrate that we should be the most joyful people in the world because our sin is not going to be held against us. No matter what happens in this life, no matter what kind of weather comes, no matter what kind of tragedy comes in our way, that we belong to the Lord. And so brothers and sisters, that calls for great rejoicing. We should celebrate. And one of the ways that we celebrate is we sing. We praise God. We praise Him for the forgiveness that he's given to us in Christ. The fact that we've been brought into his family. That when we die, we will not be sent away and departed from God, but rather we will be with God for all of eternity. And so, brothers and sisters, we should praise God. We should sing to him and rejoice in what he has done for us.